Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Joel Solomon. Joel is a husband, a father, a grandfather, and has just done so many things in his life, I couldn't even begin to list them all here, but I'll list just a couple. He's the founding member of Social Venture Institute, founding member of Vision Vancouver Party, and an advisor to Gregor Robertson, who is the longest running mayor in Vancouver history. He's a founding member of Renewal Funds, Canada's largest mission venture capital firm and more recently, the author of The Clean Money Revolution, which I highly recommend to anyone thinking about how to leverage their wealth and their money in a way that will make the world a better place. Now, I had a whole bunch of questions for Joel about politics and about movements and about social issues that we never even got to because this conversation, well, it got personal quite quickly and I appreciated Joel's candor. And so we talked a lot about personal development, about legacy, and about purpose, and really got to the heart of the matter, I think. You can find more about Joel at joelsolomon.org. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you do, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. And if you have an extra minute, please leave a review. It makes a huge difference and helps other listeners find us. You can follow me on Instagram, at Steve Rio. And if you're looking for a way to increase your performance and well-being, check out Nature of Work. It's a work-from-home optimization system for entrepreneurs and digital workers adapting to the new normal. You can find us online at natureofwork.co. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. First question I want to ask you is just, uh, how do you describe yourself? Uh, outside of maybe what is on your LinkedIn bio, how would you describe yourself? Um, I'm smiling about the question because I do get asked it in certain circumstances, particularly out on the uh, on the road, so to speak, in my conference circuit and the networks that I travel around in. And of course, I focus a lot of my time on younger people if they seem interested in anything I might have to uh, offer or share. And so I'm just going to start with what I say in those circumstances, often after hours. And I tell them that I am a master gardener of the relational field. Okay. And they say, what's that? And I say, well, I don't really know, but but I really enjoy people. And uh, I think my work is a lot about supporting, learning from, uh, playing with, uh, engaging with people. And... Then they say, "Well, what? What do you? How do you? How do you do it?" And I say, "Well, you've just got to flow and glow." And they go, like, "Huh? What's what's that?" And I say, "Well, one thing I want to tell you is sometimes you also need to know how to slide and glide." <laughs> so flow and glow, slide and glide. Yeah. And mm. I say, if you just, if you do that, mm-hmm. it'll really help you be a, a good gardener of the relational field. 
uh, and you gain, you pick up some instincts and you follow where your heart calls you to a bit and you decide whether you trust or are comfortable, uh, want to engage further or not. And by checking out a lot of other people, there's so much to learn and, and so much to get from it. So if you have anything short of now enough confidence to engage with people and just ask them questions that matter to you and actually share openly with folks, um, there's tremendous benefit there. And, I, and it's been super important for me, and it turned out I really thrived in that kind of engagement. I was fairly shy and introverted in the first half of my life, and going through personal development work of various kinds, I was able to flip that. Uh, still with underneath it, there's always some shyness and intimidation walking into a room. I don't know anyone and things like that, but I have figured out how to thrive in those kinds of environments. And it's because of, uh, I'd say two things. One is learning, the other is love. And uh, the more that I have opened up my own perspectives, uh, the ability to find love, I'm talking, of course, about the higher purpose love, uh, the uh, happier and better my life has been. That's a perfect description for the Joel I know. <laughs> That's that's great. I mean, that's. I just want to add to you too. It's enabled me to be very eclectic, and know a little bit about a lot, and fortunately focus on some things and know a lot about some narrower band topics. And if someone uh, wanted to develop their flow and glow, where does that start for you? Do you think? Well, the big category is personal development work. Uh, improving our overall inner skills, uh, the qualities that we aspire to. First, you got to think about what those might be. But once you do, there is now a world of support. We, we live in a time in history, if, especially if we're in the privileged half of uh, people. Maybe it's lower than that, depending on if you count the entire planet or not. But let's just go back to if you have the opportunity and access to be able to participate in in practicing inner skills, understanding what they are. And uh, ideally, if you have a community of practice, so to speak, where there are other people that you can find that are on similar journeys, this helped me immensely. I was quite shy, uh, probably quite insecure uh, for a long time. And uh, the pain that came from that, the kind of suffering and sh- of, of too much shyness or insecurity or self-judgment and all that kind of stuff. It was clear by my mid-30s, my uh, first wife, Louise, uh, dragged me into a uh, group process that was kind of greatest hits of the 60s, 70s, and 80s of personal development practices. And that turned me around, opened me up, and gave me a better understanding and toolkit to get over myself, about myself, okay, and just be more comfortable, increasingly comfortable with who I am. Right. Was that early attachment theory kind of stuff or was that pre-attachment theory? theory? Okay. I'm trying to think what the dominant uh, ideology around um, personal development would have been at that time. It wasn't ever expressed to me kind of intellectually. Hmm. Uh, I, I got dragged, I just, you know, I got dragged in the door. Yeah. Joel, you need to come do this. And I ended up 
developing super close relationships with a number of people. It was in Nashville, Tennessee at the time, uh, sort of our best friends and some other people that did this over several years together. And uh, the folks who led it uh, were very adept and had studied and been involved in kind of the wide array of what's available in this time in history to those that can find it and get to it and take the time, afford the time and the, the sometimes money that it takes. But it started to be clear that it was the most essential work that I could possibly do. Um, learning technical skills or uh, mastering some kind of a topic seemed far more possible if I actually had a handle on my own emotional and psychological self and where my fears, longings, doubts, all that kind of stuff, where it came from. So I just plunged in once I got in there and I had such a good experience as many who have gone through intensive group process together find out. And I, I'm sure there are hundreds and hundreds of different forms yeah. across the planet and world to do that in. It is more about the fact that you do something which allows you to question and challenge how you are and who you are and make choices about improving that or advancing it. In Realize some way. there is a choice, perhaps. Realize right? there's a choice. Yeah, That's about your perception. Yeah. That's right. I was dragged to a similar group workshop when I was, I think, 26 or 27. First time I'd cried in multiple years and uh, ended up, I think, bawling one of the days entirely, but really cracking open. I, I always talk about it being I was cracked open at that time. And up to that time, I'd always been a hard worker. To, just to your, that's really interesting that you say like technical skills are only a small portion of the battle, really, right? Because we just get in our own way so often if we're not aware. And you know, then this point where you cross, where you shift from actually disguised or masked insecurity and self doubt and uh, criticism of everyone else as a defense mechanism and and thing behaviors like that, and when led into the pathway of seeing yourself part of all of humanity and a, a product of wounds and victories and disappointments and all the stuff that happens to you that you're not as conscious about the outside environment. And as you become conscious that you can actually make choices and you can learn more about how you work and why you work certain ways you do and how to do human interaction and be empathetic with other people and et cetera, there's just like a, a golden pathway that opens up that uh, becomes a lifelong practice of self self-improvement really. And is that after your years uh, at Orca Bay? Near Alert Bay is a scientific research laboratory called Orca Lab. Orca Lab, sorry. That's what I meant, yeah. No problem. And uh, a the trainer of the orcas at uh, the Vancouver Aquarium uh, had some altered experiences with the orcas and concluded they were definitely sentient beings and that they should not be held in small, basically swimming pools or, or aquariums, and held a press conference on Monday morning and demanded that they be released. He was fired. He went over to Kitsilano to talk to the early Greenpeace founders and convince them that they should do a campaign to save the whales on the planet. And uh, I had no idea about most of that until I became the caretaker through a serendipitous event. 
and spent three years off, probably half of it alone. Yeah, and that's why I was asking is because you spent a lot of time alone uh, at a fairly young, like early stage early of your life. Mid-20s, right? yeah. Yeah, which is very rare it to is. get that kind of time alone. And what got that to happen was alienation from the prescribed pathways that um, particularly my, my male lineage wanted me to do. Yeah. Uh, my father was a shopping mall developer. I, I really didn't like much about shopping malls. And uh, that being funneled towards that caused a lot of resistance and fear that mm. I might really screw my life up. And I, and I had to say no to the great disappointment of my father. Fortunately, we were able to come back to terms uh, before he died. And uh, I went off to try to kind of find who I, who I truly was and wanted to be and get re-empowered about that. Yeah. Do you, do you look at that, you know, couple of years? I know that by the end, you were probably ready to get out of there or get some company again. But do you look at those years as as uh, kind of fundamental to Absolutely. who you are? Absolutely. It was a close call. I, I really enjoyed a lot of it. Okay. I, I didn't suffer too much because it was a period where I thrived on the silence and the time alone, the reading, mm -hmm. um, and the exposure to worlds I'd never dreamed of. And uh, in a way, I'm not sure I would have gotten dragged back into society's more mainstream part if it had not been for my father's death, which got me back to Tennessee to be with him before he passed. And because I had inherited the same genetic kidney disease that he died from, uh, that experience was very profound to watch him go from full strength to deterioration fairly quickly. Uh, he was before trans at the very beginning of transplants, and he wasn't really qualified for that. Um, I had the same disease. I was fortunate enough a couple of decades later to have a close friend give me her kidney, and um, I'm living happily ever after. Thanks to modern medicine, the Canadian healthcare system, <laughs> and, uh, and probably the practices and just becoming a healthier emotional and psychological, yeah. spiritual human being. Yeah. I have kidney disease and it was an, that was a pivotal moment in how I think about how I spend my time, my energy, my, that's honestly the, probably the reason nature of work exists five years later, uh, was realizing that I need to start taking better care of myself and learn to manage my stress, the stress that I put on myself mostly, um, learn to start taking care of myself in a new way. Yeah. So, I had forgotten that connection. Yeah. That we have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was lucky to catch it really early. And um, so I feel really lucky about that. And by making lifestyle changes, I've dumbfounded my kidney specialists who recommended medication immediately. And I, I was able to uh, sidestep that and been very healthy or kind of maintained ever since. So fingers crossed on that. But it was an eye opener, especially learning. I haven't, mine's, I don't know if Mine's an autoimmune disease, which is effectively based on stress, um, usually coming from stress, inflammation, things of that nature. And it was a really interesting eye-opener for me in terms of what was important and thinking about time differently. So I know that was a big, big thing for you. Huge. Um, so the reason I know about Orca Lab is your book, Clean Money Revolution, which you put out in 2017. 
which uh, I said before we started recording, but I'll say it again, is it's a great book. And uh, I love how much of your personal story was in there, actually, and uh, and the anecdotes and the various things you cover. Um, you do talk about personal development in there as a whole chapter, uh, which I thought was amazing because it's, it's such a key part of making good decisions. It's knowing who you are and what's important to you. Right. But um, what, uh, what motivated you to write the book and go through that effort? A simplified analysis of the world that came to me as I navigated through some decades yeah. was that the drive to accumulate infinite amounts of money uh, had really distorted human nature and the planet and history and how we relate with each other, how we relate to nature, et cetera. And I grew up in the 60s and there was a lot of turbulence going on about capitalism and wars and um, how the world works. And I was born to... Uh, not that long ago, immigrant uh, immigrants to the U.S. who had escaped oppressive circumstances in Eastern Europe and uh, did kind of a classic uh, immigrant claw their way up and build a business and, and make money. And, and at the time, the only model that I could see that was being pushed on me as someone whose family was accessing success was to be a billionaire. Just, yeah, full on. Like make a bunch of money. Mainstream capitalism. Yeah, just make a bunch of money and that was the answer to life. And uh, I, I didn't, it didn't feel right and it didn't sit right. And I felt like there was more to life than that. And so once I started thinking that way, I started questioning a lot about how capitalism worked. And I came to terms with marketplaces and exchange of goods and services as as normal as human beings. That's That's been going on forever, and there's healthy ways to do that. But once you can use money as a representation of, of those exchange of goods and services, and you can create uh, sophisticated and complex ways to manipulate systems to, to extract, uh, to extract and, to and to benefit from, learn how to extract more, and you're competing with all your peers because that's where stature and status come from. So the idea that extraction was the meaning of life uh, and accumulating the biggest pot just didn't feel right to me and it didn't feel good. I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to be successful in something. And I have spent a life in entrepreneurship and investment and in attempting to find how that can be aligned with things that actually matter as opposed to just empty crap. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and that practice over time and being fortunate enough because of it to find my way through curiosity into some of the early organizations that were also asking those questions and working on them led me to meet extraordinary people and be able to be inspired by models that had more to it than just how do I win the game of the most money. And so the early field of socially responsible investing or impact investing, uh, do-gooder stuff with money, every form of how money could be used more creatively and with deeper values started to draw me. And because it was early in that exploration in North America, uh, there was a time where I was able to think I 
probably knew most of the entrepreneurs in the continent well, yeah. that were doing those things because there weren't very many. There were always good people who had good values, even in the South with uh, all of its challenges and bigotry and discrimination and et cetera. There was still an ethic of you've got to give back to the community. Uh, yet, mostly it was the 5 or 10% uh, kind of give back that uh, religions teach you. And otherwise, the game was to be the biggest and have the most. So being exposed to the early pioneers who got there through having one way or another to make themselves disaffected or to get themselves disaffected from society and the way that the system looked like it worked, I think drove a lot of ingenuity and creativity. And so I was excited by both of that. One, there were people thinking differently. Secondly, there was opportunity to express ambition, motivation, success, but a different set of the DNA of ethics and morals and the purpose of it all underneath it. And that's the key difference for me. I love, uh, I love pulling stuff off and succeeding yeah. and creating good things in society. And when it turned out that you can do that and be a decent, hopefully be a decent person, at least believe you are, and be constructive and contributory and have a sense and, and face the question of how much is actually enough and why. And if I get there, am I really going to do something that matters with, with the success? And so that kind of thinking put me into a moral, ethical, spiritual framework that uh, the marketplace, uh, business, finance, and money could be a powerful, powerful force for good. Right. And that if we get creative and innovative and committed to stick with our kind of inner guidance and compass about that, we can pull off some incredible things as long as we continue that practice right. and, and keep challenging ourselves. Yeah. And you see the, um, you talk about in the book, the, um, the transition of wealth that's underway and will continue to be underway and, and to, sounds to me like effectively ensure that as that capital transition, so does the ethics behind it, and so does it, so does the motivations behind it, and we hope. And so, how does society establish uh, new norms that provide guardrails uh, and checks and balances on the inner life mm -hmm. that help us think through? I'm looking at a microphone here. There's metal. There's uh, there's internet or there's recording, there's yeah. going to be internet that this ever goes anywhere. Uh, if you actually stop and look at how all those are made and what the practices are that get the materials and how people are treated and how planet is treated, then you look at climate, you look at environmental catastrophes, you look at health crises that are happening all over the planet, injustice, unfairness, oppression. Uh, you start to realize that there's a deep moral and ethical pattern there's a there's a dna going on about yeah. how these all happen and what role and responsibility do i have in that if i just act like i i don't know what's going on right. and just look at the money yeah and i think i think that the institutionalized religions on the planet that have succeeded have tended to basically sell salvation yeah to mutate into uh Money machines making, to extract money. Yeah, a self-propagating machine, yeah. a self-enriching machine. And if I want my temple or church to succeed, 
then I want to attract wealthy people. If I want to attract wealthy people, I got to sell some salvage. I got to you offer paint them forgiveness. Gold on the walls. <laughs> paint, paint, <laughs> paint gold on the walls. Paint gold on the walls, but, <laughs> but also like uh, rape and plunder all week. Yeah. Go to your religion on the weekend. Get, sal- get forgiven or given tools to forgive yourself. Go back out and do it again. There's something missing there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like something you, you say in the book too. And it, it's the, the idea that you can make a bunch of money and then do good with it at some other point in your life, later in life, or push it down the road that needs to shift in, in some ways. Like, I mean, for some folks, it's that point is past and they can still make good decisions, but we need to be looking more at how we build, build things from the beginning with ethics and morals. And I have to remember every time I have this kind of conversation to acknowledge that 50% of the people on the planet live on basically too little and can barely survive and can't feed their families. And, can, and they're part of a system that systematically ends up exploiting yes. many of those people because they don't have it, the education, they don't have the access, they have the wrong skin color, they have, you know, all kinds of things that basically create a lot of oppression that is behind every single piece of material, consumer good. Well, yeah, just look at your iPhone. Go look exactly. at where your iPhone is made and how it's made, yeah. right? Yeah. And I like, I mean, I've ended up doing a fair amount of speaking about this since writing the book. And depending on the audience, I said, like, there's blood dripping off our money. Mm. Like, be real about that. Where did it come from? Who got damaged so that I can gain a benefit? What am I going to do about that and with it? And that's not a simple question and it's not easy to answer and it's complicated and we all struggle with it. Hopefully, we all. If we choose the question, we struggle with hopefully it. Hopefully, we struggle. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully everybody we chooses struggle. that struggle. I That's guess, right. right. Yeah, and hopefully, society has more and more checks and balances that cause us to do that. You wish you could count on government, which is the closest thing we have to regulating the commons mm. and setting rules about how we behave in commerce and everything else, and either provide for those who struggle the hardest or put the resources towards those who struggle the least and help them double down and triple down and go, yeah. go further and further. So it's complicated. We're hitting, we're about to hit 8 billion people. Uh, I was born with less than 3 billion people. Uh, wow. What's the right govern? Yeah. Think about that. Yeah, one. no, I know. That's wild. It's so unfathomable. And then you look at uh, how do all of we people govern and uh, the systems that it takes and it's pretty easy to see an imbalance that uh, ecological systems have been thrust upon them with humans having the opposable thumb and the ability to develop intellect and languages and systems and uh, all kinds of miracles and incredible accomplishments that can either be used as holy tools for making the world better and having future generations have a great life and not be sticking a bunch of people next to the most toxic uh, industries on the planet and stripping soil and all kinds of atrocities that we do through lack of knowledge or lack of willingness um, and lack of, of, of society actually being able to draw the line and say no to us. seems humans are really poor at uh, understanding the complexity of the systems we live within, right? And we think we're smarter than them and we can rig them and and there's a natural drive. Everybody wants to protect their children and their family and provide a roof over their heads and have healthy food and be able to have opportunities and go to university and do what they do and sure. do all that kind of stuff. So there's there's a, there's a, there's some there are very powerful forces that are almost just those are endemic. evolutionary 
right? They're evolutionarily wired, right? Yeah. And and so to notice that, choose to understand it better, and then choose a pathway that might put us in alignment with what we most care about, believe in, and are willing to practice is sounds simple. You can say it in a minute. You can talk about it for two hours. You actually to see society manage to be designed that way um, all of this adds to there's not easy answers and what i did with as you read with the term billionaire is okay that feels good that word kind of feels good yeah billionaire and i i started to question but can't billionaire apply to love or to to uh, goodness or uh, happiness or uh, great relationships or contribution to the future or things like that. In other words, ambition, motivation, passion to succeed, those things can be channeled yes. in really healthy ways. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I what came to you, you were one of the founders of Social Venture Institute at Cortez Island um, and now in Vancouver and all over the place and on the East Coast now. We're in four locations. We almost did, but I think the recent events have slowed us down on sure. moving east. But I, I was just going to say, coming to SVI, for me, was transformational in terms of giving me a language to understand what a social venture was, because I was starting to think that way. I just left a business behind, wanting to work in, with, in my mind at that time, the language I used was work in the community in a for-profit way. Um, but now I think there's a lot more language around that. Social impact is on the verge of not meaning anything and meaning everything, right? So, but it's interesting to see a whole generation of young people thinking that way. And at the same time, all of our gods are billionaires. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting uh, dichotomy there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. Um, yes, it is. I guess, uh, do, you, do you still believe in Capitalism, do you think capitalism is, I mean, no one knows for sure whether it's going to work forever. I'm not trying to ask you that, but do you still believe in capitalism? Do you, th do you think that what's happened is a mutation of capitalism or where, where do you? So capitalism, I simplify down to it's the exchange of goods and services. Right. And Somewhat are based around merit and value and. You hope. Yeah. Or hype. Sure. Hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tricksterism, snake oil, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uses of it. So it's hard to be for or against capitalism in my mind. It is really just the Yeah, the I guess you can boil it right down. Services. It's really simple. Yeah, just you've got, I need salt. You've got copper. Let's trade. Yeah. Um, I, I've got time on my hands and a strong body. Yeah. Uh, pay me a fair wage, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't have an easy time with the isms and categorizing them neatly and being for one or against the other, that kind of thing. They all have strengths and weaknesses. And a healthy capitalism would have a strong government and regulatory system of wise people. It would have uh, spiritual practitioners that help with our wisdom uh, and help us on kind of morals and ethics. Uh, but it would have, okay, let's go back to there were 2.7 billion people when I was born. There's almost 8 billion now. Who's deciding what we get to do with nature? Or who's deciding what we get to do without taking advantage of other people's challenges and not having enough money to support their families properly 
and being willing to do anything that we'll pay them to do. So they're, they're, the denigration of government and public service and the public sector and its role as the protector of the commons, so to speak, has, is systematically denigrated intentionally in order to get rid of any impediments to exploit at the maximum possible capacity with nothing that limits how much money you make, beating down taxes all the time, pushing the costs onto those with the least money, and removing costs and responsibilities from those with the most. Now, we can I'm, these are grand concepts. You can debate any piece of it. But at the end of the day, there can be a healthy exchange of goods and services if there's a, there is a reasonable and intelligent long-term thinking of somebody who actually sets rules. Yeah. And it's uh, when you say we need a strong government, you know, when, when the government who is meant to regulate has been surpassed by the economic engine, especially when you look at the United States right now. I mean, your book starts with the Powell Memo, 1971, which I read in full, which is a surprising narrative that that Powell weaves in that memo. Um, and you can sense the, his fear of, <laughs> in that memo. But uh, all the way to today, where the money in politics is rotten right through. So I don't know how the how the government's expected to do anything at this point. I don't think it was different any time. The numbers just got bigger, really. And the stakes yeah. got higher and there's more of us and we developed modern got more clever maybe technologies and clevernesses right. and you know you can now that people are going to start harvesting mars next thing you know you know it won't be that far away and, yeah and uh we're we're you can easily look at this species and decide it is destined for major collapse because it does not have the spiritual advancement, the moral intelligence and wisdom, and the self-control actually to create, to think about humans as a species that have got to live on the commons, which is the planet, and maybe it'll go to other planets, but that you can kill off, j just like every species, sure. overshoot, yeah, ecological overshoot. You get too many deer and a lot of wolves are gonna, are gonna grow. You get too few. You get too few wolves, and the deer population is going to explode. And with humans, and I, have to, I credit my friend Rex Weiler, a founder of uh, Hollyhock and a co-founder of Greenpeace, with this ecological viewpoint that really helped me grasp that ecological overshoot is basically what humans are in right now. Yes. there are there are too many of us, possibly, but too ramped up with tools and support for massive exploitation and damage to benefit individuals. Yeah. And that system you know, then moves us to the conversation, well, what's an alternative system? That gets complicated. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Uh, how do we inculcate wisdom, ecological values, long-term thinking? These are problems. Is the main purpose of your book then to just make sure as many people as possible are thinking about this? That's exactly right. And to share a lot of stories about people who are at least devoting their lives to making a positive difference. Yeah, and showing, like you say, success success without jeopardizing everything around you. And a couple of provocative things, like, like okay, so I'm a dual citizen of the US and Canada. Uh, Trump gets elected to office and makes a massive tax cut for the, for the wealthy. 
my wife Dana and I are committed to do everything we can to keep on track with being sure that we use those kinds of benefits to do more support of interesting entrepreneurships that are doing things that make a difference, to do charitable giving, to support individuals and people that are doing things that matter, and uh, to, to stay awake about each benefit that gets added that just layers another level of fat and, and uh, indulgence on us simply because we have more than enough. And once you have more than enough, if you act fairly wisely about it, you can create more, more than enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, back to you, were, we were talking about personal development. I think uh, the way I sort of look at it, I guess, uh, similar to what you mentioned, Rex talks about, we've let our minds kind of run away, right? With, from our body and from our connection with the deeper, like with our ecology, with the systems we're in. It's like we've intel over-intellectualized and therefore separated from the kind of long-term picture of what we're doing. We are missing societal institutions that actually give us a deep ethical and moral and spiritual understanding and base and some guidance about how we might live to successfully do what we want to do as good as, for our families and take care of things, but also the society around us upon which all of that depends. And we're in a very chaotic overshoot period right now yeah. where a lot of systems are breaking down. Well, yeah. And I think about my daughter being 22 and her growing up uh, in a world, to your point around institutions, like who does she look to, to be inspired or to believe that anyone is trying to do the right thing on a on a full scale who uh who like who in your mind are institutions that are are in that category well the starting place for me is the what i would call well the psychological profession i wish i had a better name for it but the how do humans develop our mindset and our belief systems and find joy love happiness, meaning, and purpose in life. And it is somewhere in that, on a larger scale, first of all, individual, first and foremost, who we are as parents, who we got exposed to as parents, and then other role models in society are about what we've got now. Mm. Uh, universities maybe have a course in ethics, but there's not... But the big institutions, I don't know that I trust what they're saying, doing. So where's the meaning of life? You should like the historically and things. Yeah. That's the spiritual traditions or the religions. And I do think that the psychological professions are some kind of next. They're attempting spiritual to find, understanding. Right. Practice. Yeah. That might help us. It's been enormously helpful to me. Um, I didn't find a religious practice that was going to help was could help me the same way, or that attracted me, or that I liked their forms, or I or I thought the ethics were actually consistent right. through. And so I've struggled with that, and I'm not a really a participant in in a major world religion. I identify as, as Jewish as an individual and her heritage wise, okay. and I got some good principles there. But it really is are the psychological and emotional uh, professions. 
and experimentation around the edges of those professions that I feel gave me the something I could stand on, trust, and feel more empowered by that had to do with advancing my own exploration and questioning and practices by which to check myself, learn things differently than the education systems currently do. They, they're helpful as well. Don't mean to. Well, they kind of give you the expertise piece, which we've already said is such a small portion of the big yes. picture of being truly successful and not, not on a billionaire scale. And there, there are many, many deeper practices available to us from, yes. uh, from the uh, substances that can do mind expansion and open our hearts deeper and cause us to think about the DNA of life and what it's all about, our purpose, things like that. Um, there certainly are pathways, but it is very easy to default to the pathway of selfishness, self-aggrandizement, fear of others, and mm -hmm. scarcity, and right? Yeah, scarcity and and the, and accumulation as an answer to fill the emptiness of that we that we don't that we don't know how to fill. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. I think I've been thinking and talking a lot about religion with folks and about what what is the future of God and, and spirituality. Um, I'm really, I, I didn't grow up religious. I'm really passionate about talking about God these days <laughs> mm -hmm. and about, and to me, just a, what is the deeper meaning of life and our connection, right? Uh, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? You said you don't subscribe to a religion. Yeah, I think they're two different, Absolutely, very different yeah. uh, things. So, well, I think we... I mean, this is a definitional question about the English language too. But um, yes, I consider myself a spiritual person because I believe that I've been exposed to enough and developed some sensibility about certain practices that cause me to question the morals and ethics of what I choose to do and how I choose to be in the world and what I do on the material plane and all those kinds of things. So how that came about was seeded by my religion, which said heaven and hell is based on the memories and the lives of those after you that look at you know that that have have some feelings about what you did with your life and so that was a good base interesting that, i actually didn't know that yeah as a fun reformed jews i don't i don't really i'm not that uh, expert of a jew to right. give the real roots of it but i did get exposed to a religion that or a spiritual practice that said your job is to help the world. Mm -hmm. It's a key part of being a decent human, and you have to do that. What does that mean? How do you do it? That's that's the the journey. But I did get exposed to that, and it helped me uh, seek many other pathways and uh, traditions, uh, insights, philosophies, activists. Uh, do-gooders of all kinds, to find models that I could care about and aspire to. And the models of the billionaire increasingly looks emotionally and spiritually bereft to me, mm -hmm. unless they are deep practitioners who somehow stumbled into a lot of money. But then you, the proof becomes in the pudding with what do you do with all that power? Mm -hmm. If you're not doing a lot 
if you're one of the people that gets the most, right? I I worry for you. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Yeah, to me, spirituality I guess boils down to your connection with all of life, like every other life on this planet, and so responsibility, sense of responsibility for it. Billions of dollars, and you're not doing anything with it. Doesn't matter how much you meditate, you're probably not a very spiritual yeah. person. And you and you can start feeling a desperation that causes you to seek some mm -hmm. of that salve. Sure. And so maybe you are practicing meditation. Maybe you're using uh, psychoactive substances to have new experiences and insights. Maybe your um, your marriage breaks apart and you end up in therapy and you're trying to figure out why you were such an asshole, <laughs> you know, or or, yeah. or how you got yourself in the circumstances. So everybody's got their moments of suffering that can create some openings and longing to understand the self better. And then from there, you can start to understand society better and, and you can learn some practices and tools that can help. Uh, but we're losing. Yeah, we're losing so those. Far. Yeah, that's why I'm interested in the conversation around God with people and spirituality and institutions. Because spiritual or religions filled a role and they started to exploit that role and now we there's a there's a void there, and I think most major institutions seem to be losing their 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 grasp. So we need a new a new era of of uh, people you know organizations at that scale. And the biggest picture to me is that uh, the pressure that humanity is now under and has created for ourselves is evidencing in more and more high risk, probably somewhat insane political leadership that's emerging around the world, that we are seeking some kind of comfort from tyrannical type strong men yeah. uh, who, who give us some security of you act right for me and I'll protect you. That's right. Yeah. And that's not enough. No, that's what, to me, the wildest thing about Trump getting elected was that enough people thought that he represented how they feel, which means very insecure, very fearful, very angry, uh, and very self-centered. And like he became an avatar for enough people that he was able to get into that seat. And, and all around the world, there are examples of him. Absolutely. He loves those examples too. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't go there too far. No. Um, in your book, you say, my purpose is to be the best ancestor I can be. Uh, is that still how you'd put it? Yeah, it's good enough. And I feel, well, that comes back to kind of, I guess you the closest I have to a religious practice is my job is to do, is to, is to, devote my life to things that in the best of my ability matter and to be a caring, committed person to self-question and ever try to recalibrate and understand what that means. It's hugely complex. But again, to the religion I did get exposed to uh, from an early age, it was you, salvation and heaven mm -hmm. is really in the memories and the track record you left in the minds of those who go after. And do you influence them to be inspired and do better? Or do you influence them to be cynical and, uh, and, and cruel and uh, corrupt? Mm -hmm. And so being the, and it is clear that I only have what I have due to the ancestors that came before me, whether the, I, 
I don't know who they were. I don't, did they do good? Did they do bad? How did, but I'm dependent on what they left behind. And I'm also uh, challenged with a lot of what they left behind, didn't do, uh, weren't able to do, the world got too big. Maybe the human species is inherently flawed and it's not, and it, and it just is out of control and overshoot. Yeah. Um, but the closest I can find to a moral pathway to live my life by is what matters most. Of course, how I treat people along the way is part of this legacy. What legacy have I devoted to that will help future generations have a better life? How you define better is a big topic, but have a better life, know how to self-explore and self-challenge and ask questions and get exposed to whatever kind of wisdom and guidance we can find, but that we're on a path where our job is to become clearer, have more better defined behaviors, morals, ethics, patterns of how we're going to live our life, and to become a more and more honest person who takes responsibility for our shortfalls and our poor behaviors and attempts to hear feedback. Or if we're in a marriage, uh, we can get into some patterns that are extremely damaging to both people. There are ways that if we commit to it, we can learn about that and we can get reflection from professionals. We can learn to get to do self-reflection and lifelong practice of how to be a better human ought to be the primary training that we get. Hmm. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'll sign up. <laughs> I sign up to that, that belief. You must get this, asked this all the time. I get asked this every time I speak to young people or, or talk to people younger than me um, about trying to find purpose. I talk to so many young people who feel like purpose is hidden under a rug somewhere. How do you think about that? How do you, how do you answer that? Well, we've referred in this conversation enough times to where we, how we don't have institutions today that, for most of us, that effectively give us the guidance, the insights, or the perspectives to understand what purpose is or how to find a purpose or how to define it, how to stick with it, what are the kind of ground rules around it, what are the features that you should know and understand. What could be more joyous than feeling like you have a purpose that matters and that by staying true to that or practicing to stay true to that, that there is great joy and satisfaction, love, pleasure, all kinds of good outcomes that may or may not make you hit the top 500 wealthiest people in the world lists or things like that. But that's why I took the billionaire concept and played with it in a number of good of different ways. One of which was, I want to be a billionaire of good deeds. Mm-hmm. I want to be a billionaire of love. And I don't, and I mean, I'm not talking about sexual love. I'm talking about the feelings of, of, of uh, caring and uh, yeah, being emotionally rich, being, being emotionally rich. And I want to have enough to take care of basics. That's a complicated question for all of us to answer. 
But once we know we have enough material plane, mm -hmm. or in addition to knowing we have enough material plane, how do we contribute to future generations and the possibility that they'll have a decent world to live in and that they may get smart enough. We're definitely getting smarter, I think. That's my impression. Many more people are getting more intellectual capacity and ability to understand the world. And the hopeful part of this uh, situation is that from that will grow new spiritual traditions, practices, emotional understandings, psychological understandings, so that the learning that we get sets us on a pathway of enough guidance, enough exploration, enough self empowerment, enough humility mm -hmm. to actually devote regular part of our mindset, our consciousness to how do I be a, a great ancestor and how do I support the larger whole and what do I contribute as a citizen? Yeah. I like how simply you've, you put that as well, because I think often young people are overcomplicating the question and then not creating any space for self-reflection. So I always say, if you just get real quiet and start listening to yourself, you'll know exactly what your purposes and values are. And it's, it's, it's right in front of you. You just can't see it. And, and I was that person and uh, everyone has to go through that struggle. And it's the lucky few who find the calling or hear the message from somewhere or find in our heart, what we're passionate about. It took me a long time that I had the confusion that probably a lot of young people do about which path, what matters and right. what's the right way to live and who am I supposed to ask and where do I find that out? And then you kind of get funneled into things because you don't have an alternative pathway. And so I, I know that there are people that are doing similar things that I did in my journey and that you obviously did in your journey to open up space, to get exposed to other cultures, to other circumstances, to learn about what meditation, which meditation and prayer are, you know, kind of I, combined yeah, absolutely, yeah. or close together. And what are the kinds of, are there practices that we can evolve as humans that will lead us down the pathways of this questions towards how we're going to find answers to it? And the answer is yes. Uh, we have to choose them. We have to, we have to find, we have to seek them, find them, and then choose them. And, we're in an era where we can do that very eclectically. I'm not talking about you've got to pick a one pathway. Right. I, 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 what's so exciting about this time is we are can be an amalgamation of many pathways, many wisdom traditions, many exposures. Right. A lot of the dogmas are falling away, the restrictions and the boundaries and the, yeah, all of that's falling away, which in, on the one hand probably creates a sense of infinite choice and, and, and challenge there. But, uh, also creates incredible opportunity. How do you stay, like, do you have inner inner practices, inner work practices, meditation, um, reflection? Like, what what does that look like for you in terms of staying staying close to the your truth? The first thing that comes to mind is community of practice, so to speak, and I'm going to define it very broadly as opposed to, like, a direct spiritual practice, but is constantly surrounding myself and selecting for people who are on paths, conscious paths, and attempting to improve ourselves. And 
I don't do that through any one group at this point. I had times of my life where I was involved in multi-year intensives with groups of people to explore these kinds of questions and and reading and silence and uh, you know lots of lots of I guess a pathway that I had to invent for myself or I chose to. And so these days it's really about using my instincts to get myself in places where my better side and values are going to be supported and appreciated and where I'll be with people that I can learn from experientially for the most part. Uh, we live in an incredible time on the planet if we are pri privileged enough to have access to it because the entire history of spiritual practices, of music, of arts, of creativity, of we, there's so much. Now, it can be overwhelming and therefore bewildering. But if we can find our balance within that, what a time to be alive. So I think I instinctually choose where to be and who to be with in a broad way. I have close relationships who are checkpoints and with whom we may explore together the deep questions in our lives. And I get, because I'm involved in the human potential movement work or the psychological, emotional, and spiritual practices and the, the work of how to be a better, more effective person became a really important part of my life and my life work. I think I'm naturally now accessed to uh, people on those kinds of pathways. And so there is a culture of lifelong practice that takes thousands of different forms. Right. And I'm less concerned about, you know, when you find a form that really works for you and maybe a community of go for it. But you can also reach a point of understanding that there are many, many different valuable practices and you don't need to pressure yourself to perfect them necessarily, that you've got to de develop your own guidance system to choose that you're more conscious about what you're thinking and feeling. You're more conscious about your actions with others you're more conscious in choosing where to put yourself. And when you round to that corner, that number one, you've got your, you are, there's a privileged topic here in the middle of this, which is, do, are you someone who has those opportunities? But my belief and my relatively limited, but somewhat exposure to other cultures and travel and reading and et cetera, is that, it's sometimes the people in the most difficult and challenging uh, conditions that develop the the best that abilities yes, to have yes. that fortitude and to be very focused on on uh, what it takes just to feed family and stay alive and be a person with some integrity for your own deathbed. Um, but for sure, in the privileged classes, which at this point must be a couple billion people anyway on yeah. the planet. I think about privilege there, I guess, is the, uh, just the, the privilege is knowing that that information or exists, that those wisdom traditions exist, that, that you actually can see outside of a very small circle. That to me is, because then the information is there, but it's, it's just crossing that chasm. And to some degree, having some time and maybe some access. That's true. Things like that, that yeah. uh, give you the capacity to do it more and, and better. But, but the point is, humans have been getting by for a long time. 
despite the ugly ones and the nasty ones that end up doing really bad things to people sure. and to their constituencies or to, to but even within that, um, people are pretty resilient and inherently have access to wisdom or at least to choice about their own morals mm -hmm. and about how, how we are going to behave. And I can't, I just can't speak to the experience of, of billions and billions of people. I can only really talk about my own. And I know that I have a hell of a lot more choice than I once thought I did. And by, let's say, um, taking responsibility, accepting that responsibility and embodying it, which means I'm willing to question or be questioned in my own actions to continue learning and exploring and to experiment when needed. And if I am feeling off or struggling to have the wherewithal and enough of the knowledge to know where to find help and support to, to kind of lift me or carry me through, ask me the right questions, challenge me in the right ways mm -hmm. to get back on track. All of that work led me to, to have a practice, which is, is what I'm doing, does it matter? And do I believe in it? Do I, do I truly believe I'm make sincerely making a difference and a, and a positive difference. And with that kind of framework uh, combined with whatever all I've had access to in my life, um, I would say my joy and happiness, ability to love, to feel love is really at its peak in my lifetime. And that's precious. And I, that's beautiful. I deeply, deeply grateful mm -hmm. that my pathway gave that to me. And uh, you know, knock on wood, I don't have that many more decades, if if even multiple decades. And uh, if I could die feeling joy about what life was, that will be the highest possible accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And the second part of it will be, did I, did I actually authentically practice this by watching pretty much every action and choice and attempting to find a healthier, more wholesome, more satisfying, more generative, more supportive of other than just me and my ego and my life? And that, that to, that's the secret of, of a good life for me. Mm -hmm. It matters. I, I will continually question and reevaluate and do better. And I will leave behind a legacy of, of an honest attempt at that journey. Others will judge however they judge, but that gives me really great joy to imagine that I might be able to maintain that practice hmm. till the end. It's beautiful, Joe. <laughs> I appreciate that. 
um, you said just earlier in that, uh, when I asked you, you know, what are your inner work practices? And you said surrounding yourself by, with people that are on those paths. Um, you know, it's part of the reason I have this podcast is to surround myself with and have these conversations. And I want to say to you, like Hollyhock, uh, which you and your wife, Dana had a huge role in building to me is, is a cornerstone place in my life in terms of giving me community, uh, language, understanding about myself. A conversation I had there led to me meeting my wife somewhere else, but it was, it was a conversation in the woods there that wouldn't have happened anywhere else. You know, so you've, you've done a lot for, I think you've helped create that space for a lot of people. So thank you. Well, thanks for uh, noticing and acknowledging that, which does give me great joy. And it's a unique, uh, it's a unique theory of change, I guess, what Hollyhock is, uh, but it has a lot of sincerity of caring and self-practice at its roots. And mm. I was there at the beginning, but I was, I was a volunteer gardener and I, I was just trying to learn my way in the world, but I was able to get exposed even 35 years ago there to, when it was founded to uh, access to a lot of the great thinkers, feelers, teachers, and uh, challengers yeah. of, of all these same questions we're talking about. I'm really a product of that place. So am I. Thanks to us. And, and it was incredible to get to put in all those decades in, in, yeah. uh, in that mix. And, and a lot of the, almost everything I've talked about today, I could, I could uh, repeat about that. And you've participated in some of it and the, uh, what the experience can build to by the end of whatever kind of session one is doing there is, is really a remarkable thing. Yeah, it strikes me similar. I've been thinking about this conversation as we've been going through it and reading the book and thinking about how you've navigated life. Cause I, I guess I've been thinking a lot about progressive movements and all of the big questions we need to ask right now. Um, but it seems to me you've, you've sort of sidestepped the dogma all along the way and stayed really focused on value and creating partnerships and learning and continually just navigating the tough questions without getting stuck in any one belief structure or, and, and being open to everything. I think Hollyhock does a great job of that too. It's such a diverse, I mean, you can really go do almost anything at Hollyhock. It's very eclectic. Right? Yeah. And that would be maybe the greatest uh, privilege of modern times for those who can have access to that kind of pathway. Um, there, there are wisdom traditions from there thousands of wisdom traditions from different cultures, practices, spirituality, and things like that. And we actually do hypothetically have access to a lot of, it's just like music and food <clears throat> from every corner of the planet is available to us now. Arts and culture, learning, um, it, it should be, this should be the glory days of humanity. And hopefully we're gonna get there. Yeah, we're going through some kind of apocalypse right now. And, uh, I, I think of that term as a there's a positive ending to that term, uh, but we're going th we're going through th like dealing with having this amount of access to information, this amount of access to you know just to see how everything is actually working. It's like everything is opened up now, which is causing a lot of a lot of pain um, and uh, a lot of questions. And I hope that more of us uh, 
we can sidestep the dogma as we enter into these big conversations and move pragmatically towards solutions and answers to all that and take advantage of all this. Do good, do less harm, uh, keep practicing, keep questioning, particularly yourself, and uh, do better. Yeah. Do less harm, do more good. Thanks for the conversation, Jill. It was really fun. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. For show notes and other info about the podcast, check out natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering the stress and anxiety you feel, definitely check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and my life, not only the quality of my work, but how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.